So thank you for joining us today. You're listening to Eddie Bawe Kano Matalino, a bi-weekly podcast that seeks to debunk common misconceptions about Philippine history. Each episode, we reconsider a person, an event, or place that's been construed within the periphery of the public. I'm your host, Elijah Garcia. The Second World War is generally viewed by Filipino rural dwellers as a watershed dividing the post-war from the pre-war era, otherwise known as peacetime, when life is remembered to have been quieter, more moral, and satisfying. For most Filipinos in the 1950s and 1960s, there was a certain nostalgia for peacetime, which they referred vaguely to as the pre-war years. With an abundance of American commodities, the proliferation of mass media, and decades of imperialism coming to an end, it seems self-explanatory how some would view this era with much favor. However, peering past the rose-tinted glasses our recent forefathers take on, we begin to notice that the very facet and perception of prosperity may have been greatly construed by a concentrated niche. What succeeded this period, of course, in Philippine history was the Second World War and the Japanese occupation. The occupation itself was horrific, and there were a number of economic and political problems after independence that may have made the past look rosier than it really was. Today, I'm joined by my guests Selena, Pilar, Courtney, and Nina as we reevaluate the idea of prosperity in the pre-Second World War era of the Philippines. The crux of today's podcast will be Luis Larry's views on a seminal piece, The Myth of Stem. So before we dwell on this topic, I think it's good to introduce the author. Uh, Luis Derry was born on March 8, 1946 in Sorsogon. He graduated from the College of UP where he finished BS in Education and a major in History. Luis Derry is a Filipino educator, historian, and writer. He has taught in UP Baguio and University of La Salle. He is a renowned historian and uh, he is published 11 books and has three outstanding book awards from UP President's Office and two from the National Academy of Science and Technology. In his seminal piece, The, the Myth of Peacetime, there he contends that there is no denying that there was some form of prosperity present during the American colonial period. However, it was more of a matter of reconfiguring the meaning of prosperity and who got the biggest share of it. Unfortunately, only agents of American imperialism and Manila's elite were able to have a share of such prosperity. The majority of the Philippine population, made up of the urban and rural working class, did not get to enjoy such prosperity. In fact, one might say they suffered because of it. Derry ultimately seeks to debunk the misconception by presenting historical evidence on a part of the story that's often obscured by history's winners. What is the root of peacetime prosperity? Much of the misconception of the American period being a time of great prosperity comes from what the elders who grew up at such a time perceived as prosperity. And these were quality American goods at low prices and more infrastructure programs. So there's the Payne-Aldrich Act of 1909, where American products could enter the PH without any tariffs since we were colonies. This act ensured that we didn't put any limits to the quantity exported or how much was used in manufacturing. This in turn incentivized Filipinos to buy more American products due to the lower prices. We compare this to our colonization under the Spaniards, the infrastructure programs that Americans had promoted built much more bridges, schools, including the famous UP, roads, and the like. Thus, 
many elders would equate such infrastructural progress to prosperity. However, this disingenuously ignores the plight of the majority of the Filipinos, who were workers subjugated to unsatisfactory living conditions due to the abuse of the elite, most of which were foreigners. So who really prospered during this peacetime era? The simple answer is the colonizers, America. I know it's disappointing, but it's not surprising. Free trade debunked. The U.S.'s main motivation for setting up a tariff-free trading system was so they could establish a monopoly over the Philippine market so they could enjoy it. In order to do that, they needed to incentivize the Filipino producers and consumers. They created a system where American goods dominated the country's market. They earned from our support of their products and from their investment in our products, such industries that manufacture coconut products sugar, mining, wood, and even electricity were propelled by U.S. investments. Sadly, it's not even an issue involving the U.S. alone. The Philippine Economic Association stated that approximately 70% of the volume of business is transacted by foreigners. Countries like Japan, which controls the majority of our fishing industry, Spain, with powerful Spanish descent families like Ayala, Zabel, and Rojas, Britain and China, both having large control over our banking and other business industries, all hold the majority share of our businesses. Derry states that the Filipinos, therefore, were confined to their sari-sari stores, which brings us to the next point. So the character of the Philippine colonial economy. So since the majority of the large-scale industries and businesses were run by foreigners, what did that leave the Filipinos? A majority of the masses were not only left with very small businesses like Sari Sari stores, but were left with no choice but to become farmers, a means to produce the raw material foreign powers needed for export. So what did that what did this mean for the PH economy? It ensured that our local economy would be an agricultural one which meant that Filipinos would have to rely on the production and exportation of raw materials as a means of earning. So sugar, this was the number one Philippine export crop, composing of 60% of the total value of Philippine exports, with 2 million Filipinos relying on its cultivation as a source of livelihood. Next would be coconut, which would be the second top export crop. Crop, 20% of the total value of Philippine exports, with 4 million Filipinos relying on its cultivation as a source of livelihood. Tobacco, the number one employer of labor, with 600,000 Filipinos dependent on its industry. Abaca represented 12% of the country's annual export, with 2.5, around 2.5 Filipinos dependent on the industry. Rice, the staple food of the country, one half of the total investments on agricultural industries was for its production, with 4 million Filipinos dependent on the industry. So about 16 million Filipinos dependent on the production of just five crops for their livelihood, despite the American market that demanded the products being artificial and impermanent. Okay, so thank you for that, Selena. So we move on to what exactly the share of the Filipinos were in this peacetime prosperity. So three consensus, three censuses were conducted, the most notable one being the 1939 census. Increased infrastructure and trade were not synonymous to the well-being of most Filipinos. In fact, they showed how this peacetime prosperity was not shared by the majority. For one, we're going to talk about employment and wages. The agricultural industry was the one with the most Filipinos dependent on it, 
with 3,456,370 employees out of a total of more than 8 million employed Filipinos. However, despite this, those in the agricultural industry only received the average monthly salary of 14 pesos. Even with the cost of living back then, this salary would be considered a starvation salary for a family's basic needs and other living expenses. Out of more than 8 million employed Filipinos, only 1,966,916 received salaries and wages. The rest either received irregular wages or starvation salaries. Now we move on to health. These unlivable wage conditions affected and were affected by the health conditions of the majority of the Filipinos. Workers in both rural and urban districts were underfed or suffered from malnutrition, which is a huge number considering 90% of pre-war Philippines was rural. 85 to 90% of the Filipinos' food intake was composed of carbohydrates, an unbalanced, an unbalanced nutrition that made workers more susceptible to illness. <clears throat> Employers also neglected the medical needs of their workers. Only 172,605 of the more than 8 million workers received benefits from medicinal, industrial, and treatment laws. Employees were also trapped in a vicious cycle. Their poor work conditions and sustainable and unsustainable wages made them vulnerable, forced to live in densely crowded and unsanitary areas, thus making them more susceptible to debilitating health. And their poor health brought more risk by either reducing their wages or causing them to be dismissed from the job. This is best substantiated by a quote from former Governor General William C. Forbes. He, he says, quote, Health is poor, thus farmers are inefficient. There is widespread malnutrition. 15,000 persons die each year from beriberi alone. 85% of the rural population are infected with hookworm and roundworm. The average death rate from tuberculosis is about 275 per 100,000. Infant, infant mortality rate, as reported in 1935, was 19.92 per 1,000. Malaria and intestinal diseases are widespread, and epidemics of typhoid fever and cholera are frequent, end quote. And next, moving on to education. Out of more than 8 million people who were employed, more than half could not read or write. 90% of the illiterate population being agricultural workers. Poor health and wages had a direct impact on the educational attainment of many of these Filipinos. 60% of the 16 million Filipinos did not finish their elementary education. With poor wages, children with empty stomachs had to drop out in order to earn and survive. Education became the least of their worries, and as stated by Derry, quote, an elusive dream, end quote. Thank you, Nina. So as Nina mentioned, uh, clearly the conditions that surrounded most Filipinos of that period were really terrible, which um, leads us to the next point of discussion, which is the workers' unrest, a contradiction to peacetime prosperity. The labor discontent and agrarian unrest were clear indicators of the unequal share of the supposed peacetime prosperity, with the government, landlords, and business owners pocketing most of the earnings from crop production. This caused an inevitable opposition against these powers with colorum uprisings from rural workers who were tired of their unfair living conditions with the knowledge that others were profiting for their exploitation. Uprisings like the Ronquillo Affair in Cavite, the 1931 Tayug Uprising, the 1935 Sakdal Uprising were manifestations of the working class's desire for better living and working conditions. Despite the government's initiatives to quell such movements, they persisted and only grew in intensity. So now we can move on to the analysis of everything that's been said. So 
Firstly, economic restrictions imposed on Philippine agriculture and industries during the Commonwealth period made the Philippines more dependent on Americans and underdeveloped. Colonial economic preferences with the United States led the Philippines to send more than two-thirds of its commodity exports to American consumers and to become attached to American-made products, which accounted for two-thirds of all imports. According to the terms of the Tidings-McDuffie Act, this duty-free relationship would end with independence. At that time, Philippine products would be subject to full U.S. duties. With the imposition of the full tariff in 1946, Philippine exports to the United States and imports coming from the United States were expected to decline significantly. Philippine leaders had just 10 years to divert trade from the United States and develop new industries to replace American imports. This epoch prior to the Second World War constituted an abundance of American products. However, the sudden decline of American commodities due to the intervention of the Second World War, along with the unending economic policy, may have misconstrued the public's perception that peacetime was more prosperous in era than it actually was. Okay, another key takeaway we can take from this article is that many of the social injustices present back then are still experienced in our society today. You know, disappointing, but not surprising. Looking at the socioeconomic condition of the Filipinos during the so-called peacetime in Derry's article, we can see that the main source of livelihood is agriculture. Yet under that, the workers are the lowest paid, second to domestic workers. These farmers do not get paid enough for the amount of work they put in, and their salary is nowhere near enough to live a comfortable life given the cost of living at the time. Nearly 80 years later, farmers find themselves in a similar situation. A 2017 survey revealed that farmers earn an average of 100,000 pesos a year, which is roughly 8,000 pesos a month. This is below the the poverty line of 2015, and it is nearly half of the supposed minimum wage of a regular worker. This goes to show that farmers were not experiencing prosperity then and are still not experiencing prosperity now. Right. Thank you for that, Nina. So according to the reading, agriculture was one of the leading sources of livelihood back in 1939, accounting for approximately 40% of total employment. However, recent statistics shows that in 2020, agriculture provides jobs for only 20% of those employed. Moreover, data shows a decreasing trend and in the number of employment in the agriculture sector over the years, which reflect in the country's economy. In the last decade, the share of agriculture in the gross domestic product dropped from approximately 14% to 8 These are not merely numbers. They show that the important sector of agriculture is continuously shrinking. History has already shown us that this sector is vital to the country and to the people. Thus, it should be a wake-up call to the government. This decline may be caused by insufficient investment in facilities and infrastructures, non-implementation of existing programs, lack of funding, and low support to small farmers. Addressing these are a must in order to protect agriculture because agriculture is not only a sector, it is also part of Philippine history. Perhaps the greatest takeaway one may get from Barry's article is that, in hindsight, personal interests and politicking took centerfold from the onset the onset of Philippine independence. This would have devastating repercussions in the long run. This was not only manifested in economic policies, but also political institutions enacted by the American government. 
The general favor of the assembly to the local elite made them quite out of touch in passing legislation that would benefit the public. The passing of the Bain Aldrich Act, Underwood Simmons Act, and the subsequent development of Mindanao made the Commonwealth generation predicate economic success from the American standard. The 10-year timeline for economic development to dovetail Philippine independence was an arduous task. That's very interesting, Court. I actually, as far as economic development is concerned, I mean, in totality, as what Derry mentions, I remember reading an article published by Stephen McIsaac in 2002, which suggested that regardless of the war, the Philippines would have made little to no progress towards the goal of adjusting to the loss of access to the American market in 1946. Due in most part to restrictions imposed by American policy, as you said, it, it did make us import-dependent and export-oriented, which may have weakened efforts to strengthen domestic currency and the consumption of locally sourced goods. This orientation, this orientation to serve an American master is quite evident in today's society. We actually see remnants of it as in the recent glorification of OFWs as they've been hailed as the new heroes and as well as the, you know, as the the prevalence of brain drain. So um, does anybody else want to say anything like to wrap this up? Uh, I guess we can start with um, the first conclusion based on everything that's been said. And it's that peacetime prosperity was only enjoyed by foreigners and those who had status, money and power. And the country was predominantly controlled by foreigners and the Filipinos were not the true beneficiaries of this peacetime prosperity. The Philippines claims to be independent, but has not really managed to separate itself completely from foreign control. To this day, the ripples felt from the American period have become tidal waves that continue to crash against our society. However, we're not completely powerless against these waves, and we can resist in our own ways. So for one, during this pandemic... We can support farmers by buying agricultural products directly from them. The social enterprise Real Rising Philippines endorses rescue buying, buying produce from farmers who have lost their buyers due to this pandemic. They can be found on Lazada and on their website. They can also be physically located at 72 Mayusin Street, UP Village, Diliman, Quezon City. Other initiatives with the same aim of helping farmers during this pandemic will be linked in a Rappler article in the description, which collects these initiatives and their contact details into a list for your convenience. Okay. Another would be standing in solidarity with the farmers politically. This includes following progressive organizations such as Buklura ng Mangagawang Pilipino or BMP, which is a political center that that um, represents labor unions. Participate and also you may participate in rallies that call for equality and fair wages and voting for government officials whose platforms ensure the protection of workers against further abuse, such as those who are in support for the end of contractualization. Political involvement is crucial in achieving social change and must be a collective effort of the people in the name of democracy. And I quote, for we must never forget that to express an ideal is to express discontent with the real existing conditions. A Manila Tribune editorial wrote on May 17, 1935, regarding the 1935 Sakdal uprising. As Athenians, we often pass the line, men and women for others. It is about time you reflected that by writing our own history. 
a history built on the fight for equality and justice for every single Filipino. Wow, that was really insightful, guys. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you've learned something from what we've discussed. I hope that uh, to all our listeners out there that you um, reevaluate what a lot of like historical events and hopefully gain your own insight. So thank you for joining us this week on Eddie Wawik on Matalino. Make sure to visit our website where you can subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or via RSS. So you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on whichever medium you're listening to. Or if you simply tell a friend about the show, that helps us out too. So once again, thank you. And this is your host, Elijah, signing off. Thank you.